guest today on this episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast is the writer of VandySports.com, a part of the Rivals.com network, host of the VandySports.com podcast, former host of the It's Optional SEC pod with Trey Wallace and others, my guest on this podcast is Chris Lee. If you enjoy this episode, rate, subscribe, and review the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. If you have ideas or suggestions for people you'd like to have on the pod, please shoot me an email at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb. If you want to try to find me on Facebook, use the email at the top of the intro. Enjoy the episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast with Chris Lee. This is a Believe Podcast production. Today, on this beloved and talented episode of the Blind Broadcaster Pod, joined by the writer of Vandy Sports Tom, former host of its optional SEC. Hopefully that'll be back up and brought back from the dead at some point. And now doing a podcast, the Vandy Sports Report. Joined by Chris Lee. And I always like to start these pods with the following. When did you know writing was going to be for you? And when did you know that writing was going to be your life's work? Uh, first of all, Luther, thank you for having me on. You were a kind man and always enjoyed our conversations when I was in radio. Well, I try. <laughs> As to writing, this kind of a complicated answer because the first part goes back to the early 2000s. And I've been at a time in my life when I'm sort of – in this in-between where I had gotten a master's and was thinking about college teaching mm-hmm. and was in a career in kind of the investment field briefly that didn't really take and didn't really offer me what I thought it might. It wasn't really challenging in an intellectual sense. And so I was kind of toying with what am I going to do with my life? I eventually got back into higher ed But in between, and even after I got into higher ed, I was working around with the idea of writing, and I did some stuff. I wrote a fantasy baseball book that I self-published, and I think sometimes God brings you things that you're not seeking, and I got a call from a dear friend. This would have been late 2002. He said, I work at Rivals.com. We're thinking of starting a Vandy site, and you were the guy that I thought of. Uh, Now, I don't know if that's because he thought I was talented or I was dumb enough to do something with such a small market. It, it might've been the latter, but. Or a combination of both. It, it could have been, uh, but in, in either case, it was an opportunity, right? And it was kind of, of an opportunity that I've been looking for. I grew up in Nashville covering Vanderbilt games. Um, and that's where I'll hit the pause button. And I'll go back to my childhood My dad took me to my first Sounds game. I think this would have been 1978 when they first had a team. Was that – no, okay. Was that before 
Larry Schmidt owned it, or did he own it at the time when you went to dearly departed Herschel Greer Stadium with the guitar side scoreboard? <laughs> yeah, right. No, that was <laughs> when Larry Schmidt owned it. Larry Schmidt was the guy that got that franchise off the ground. Mm-hmm. And if you were around then, which I was not, which you were not, but if you were, that was what we had. I mean, Vander, really, the sports in town at the time were probably the Sounds and Vanderbilt basketball, mm-hmm. and to some degree football. But there was mm-hmm. a magnetism about being at that park. You know, they would pack it out for minor league games, and again, it was just a different landscape than it is now, completely. But uh, baseball <laughs> just won my heart from the first game I went to, and that was sort of a jumping off point to watch other sports. I was soon watching the NFL and baseball on TV. Dad was taking me with my brothers to a lot of Andy games when we could afford to go. And so this was the background to my life as a kid, Luther. And when I was in school, I always had a talent for writing and reading. I I didn't really enjoy school. Right. But I think that writing – came easy to me. Um, I always got my best marks in writing. And in the mom would take us to the library. We grew up in Hendersonville. And so I spent a lot of time at the Martin Curtis public library. Ah. And I'm sure I read every sports book that that place had at one point. And so you can sort of see how these fibers start to weave together um, through a love of, of reading I think if you read a lot, it makes you a better writer. Uh, And so really, I think if you would ask people when I was a kid, what is it that you're going to do with your life? Or what is it that maybe you should do with your life? I think a lot of people would have said sports writing. But for some reason, when I went to college and went to Lipscomb, they didn't have a journalism major. I got busy doing the things that college kids do, Mm -hmm. chasing girls and (laughs) joining fraternities and those sorts of things. And it just sort of got lost. And again, I got out of college and I had a two business degrees. And again, I'm, I enjoyed the college age demographic and being around it. Um, but somewhere a year or two after I got my master's degree, the writing bug sort of caught me again. Um, opportunities arose and, and here we are today. So I'm sorry for the long answer, but that's really how it all came together. Hey, it's a podcast. We can go as long as we wish. So, hey. Exactly. <laughs> you know how that goes. When you're in podcast mode, you don't have to worry about, oh, we have to take a break and we have to pick up on this, please. In Big podcast time. mode, you can do what you wish. As long or as short. So, what did you major in in college and how long was the teaching career? And how were you able to get some writing in on the side while doing teaching education to kids? Well, I'll just walk you through it chronologically, okay? I finished at Lipscomb in 1993. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really enjoyed my time there. Had started giving tours for their admissions office. And I decided, okay, I really enjoy this. And that kind of became the career that I wanted to go into. Stuck at that for five years. I was an undergrad recruiter for them. And I would go all across the country, even went into Alaska, And after about five years, I kind of thought, well, it's really time for the next phase of my life. I, again, I enjoyed that, that demographic and I went and got a master's degree and was thinking about becoming a business teacher. 
um, again, just because I like dealing with that age group so much. Well, I, I did my master's degree in 15 months. And in that, mm -hmm. I just really discovered I did not enjoy the learning and the research part of it as much as I needed to right. to pursue a doctorate, which is really what you need. And so I just, I, as sidetracked, I've always had an interest in economics and business. And I looked at financial services, was in that for about a year. Um, it, it worked at a company called JC Bradford uh, that was a private brokerage firm in town. And, and literally within two or three months of, being with them, uh, they were bought by a publicly traded firm and, and everything got shaken up. And mm -hmm. basically after a year just concluded after going to another firm, it wasn't for me. So then I'm scrambling, what am I going to do? I went back to what was familiar, which was college admissions, went to a private art design school um, in the area and was there for 10 or 11 years. But early into that, I the, the rivals thing came up. And I was able to do that on the side nights and weekends and going to games and things. And again, um, I started that in 03 and that was just always in the background. I was like, I got into sports journalism. It's like, Hey, this is the piece that maybe I thought I was missing with other things, but I think it's my calling. Let's see where it goes. And mm -hmm. I think if your calling opportunities came up and they just did. And, and one day um, I made the switch to it full time near the end of 2011, and, and here we are. Now, let's back up, because you said you were an underground recruiter. Is Undergraduate admissions recruiter. Yeah, was is it... Well, I'll let you explain it, because that's just interesting, because I know a lot of, you know, graduate assistant coaches will, you know, talk to kids, and coaches will, you know, football coaches and other sports coaches will go recruit and try to get the best of the best in the country. So what did your role entail as a undergraduate recruiter or whatever your role was? That you yeah, were... well, it's, it's the same thing as in athletics, except you do it for students, right? And sure. so most of us, when we were kids, you go to school, you have the college nights with all the booths and things. And I was a guy on the other side of the table at that. Uh, being at Lipscomb, it was a church-related school. Mm -hmm. uh, we drew heavily from churches, and so I would visit those as well on Wednesdays and Sundays. And I just spent a good bit of my 20s traveling the country, um, and sometimes that was 20 minutes from my doorstep. Sometimes that was a four-hour flight away. But that was my job to, to find the best kids we could get and as many of them, and, and, and to bring them into school. Ah, makes more sense. Because when you said recruiting, I'm thinking, okay, sports-related, but I know there's probably some similarities, and then there are probably some differences right. in that. Because so, when you said underground recruitment, I'm like, okay, interesting. So Yeah, you, and, and it was an interesting field. You get to meet a lot of people. You get to polish <laughs> skills um and, and i think those things help you in any walk of life so when you were doing the undergraduate recruitment what things did you feel like you learned that you carry into what you do now like what were the pros and cons of it and what were things that you pulled from it that you're still using to this day 
Well, it does a few things. You learn people skills, of course, and you learn speaking skills. I mean, I would, I would have to talk at churches and um, at college nights and things, and I would find myself speaking in front of audiences of, of a hundred people or, or maybe dozens or sometimes maybe a thousand on occasion. And so a lot of people have a fear of public speaking that kind of cures you of it pretty quickly. And after a while you get used to it, you realize, uh, Hey, this isn't really that bad. Um, and, and you sort of lose your fear of that. And I think the thing in recruiting that you realize is it's about relationships and the kids that I recruited, I would talk to keep going. Uh, a half dozen times, you know, or more on the phone, I would meet them at their high school. So you get to know them and what makes them tick. And I think that people, um, you know, getting to know them, because we're in the media business, a lot of times you're dealing with sponsors, you're dealing with general managers at stations and, and things like that. Those really come in handy. And I think that was a dimension that I took into the media side and just dealing with people. And then when you get into radio, dealing with callers and things like that. So I think those were things that I, I never thought while I was doing those things that, hey, I'm going to use this for radio or for something later. Uh, but they certainly helped me polish those skills, I think, at that time, even if I didn't know where that was going to lead. How tough was it? <clears throat> if you were starting a family and things like that, we were trying to figure out you know, what your calling was, and then when you went to sports writing, how tough is it to keep the balance when you're doing writing at home or do, dealing with family stuff at home and then doing your work outside of the home? How do you keep a balance even though you know you have to get things in on a deadline because you're dealing with a time crunch? Boy, the, the, you've asked a great question, and it's not easy. Um, there have been times that I have dedicated too much of my life to work and probably not enough to family. The thing that I find, I don't know if it works this way for other people, but there are other things I enjoy. I enjoy reading and watching movies and sure. doing things with friends apart from sports. And there have been times in my life where the sports journalism element and the work that's that you've got to put in to do it really well has really dominated a lot of my time. And, and then in turn, what I found is when your life gets out of balance, um, it becomes work and not, not work you enjoy. Mm -hmm. And it, it's almost like, I hate to say it's an addiction because that's not, well, that's what it is. I mean, well, it, it is. And it's not, you know, I know there are people out there and I've, I've had, friends and family that battled chemical and alcohol addictions and things. I know it operates differently, sure. but at least on a lesser scale, it is something that you look up and you go, Whoa, am, am I working or am I a slave to this? And so I've had, I would say two or three times in my life where I've gotten to that point. In fact, one, one time I walked away from it for a couple of months entirely when I had a full-time job mm -hmm. and, and I came back to it. I thought, well, the lesson I'm going to learn from this is I can still love it, but I'm not going to love it if it's a, if it's an all consuming thing. And so for me, there's a balancing mechanism in there. Um, and now with, with kids and things, I've, and I've got kids who were six and eight, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there've been times I've been at games that maybe I didn't have to cover and I, and this stuff with my kids and I thought, you know, I would go back and maybe make that choice differently and, and mm-hmm. put the press pass aside for the day and, and go see something my son was doing or doing my wife and kids with something. So I found as I've gotten older, that balance is easy to achieve. Uh, but I guess my warning to people is, is that there's a lot of failed marriages and things out there. Tell me about it. But that work-life balance got out of whack. Um, and, because one and, thing was dominating yeah. over the other. Yeah, and unfortunately for me, as I've gotten older, uh, again, you mature and you're able to prioritize better. But that that has been a tough thing. And, and there have been times, um, even when my wife and I were on the same page about things, uh, where I was working 78-hour weeks and, and picking up side things, and it just gets to be exhausting. And so I think the thing with sports journalism is – the money in it for most of us isn't great. And so you're going to have to work a lot, uh, but, but it's being able to find a way to do all those things and find a balance. And it's never easy. And luckily you've had the same lady your whole, this whole time. So that's a good thing that you've, you know, been able to keep the balance, but I know there are probably days where it's like, okay, why am I still doing this? Should I really still be doing this? I know you probably ask the questions to yourself a lot of the time, like as a sports journalism writer, you probably probably have wrestled with that question more than 50 times. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have. And there are days that, you know, you look at the world around us as it's kind of currently falling apart right and and i think we've gone i think we've gone past kind of <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's you're right that's putting it mildly uh, but that, i think we've gone past kind of and we're basically at the point of like we're teetering on the brink of a point beyond the point of no return yeah i, I would be careful yeah and that's that's a it's a tragic conversation and, and I but think, it's a conversation that has to be had well, and it is, and it's a difficult conversation to have because people are looking to pick flaws with you before they are to listen to you for the most part. But sure. um, yeah, back, back to what you were saying a minute ago, um, and, and excuse me, I've, I've kind of lost my train of thought here. Um, Basically, like you back oh, wrestling I, with I, the – I figured it out. Um, wrestling with the question of should I still be doing this, what, you know – why am yes. I still doing this? Do I still love what I do? Or should I go find something else that'll keep me at home more with the youngins while they're still growing up? Yeah. And look, that's for me, that's a constant question that's on in the background. Uh, and, and for me, that's a thing that you just kind of commit to prayer and say, God, show me where the opportunities are. If you want me to stay in this, let me know. If you've got something else, let me know. And I'm open to that. Um, but one of the struggles I've had at times, Luther, is, I mean, look, we're, we're covering sports, right? So this is not, this as they, is as not. They, as they always say, sports is the toy department. Broadcasting yeah. and sports are the toy departments, but we don't think of it that way because for us, it's important. I mean, with me doing high school sports, me doing minor league sports with you writing about college and, you know, what you're writing about with the MLB draft that's going to be cut to five rounds. I mean, for I mean, this for us is some serious stuff. Yeah, and it's not curing cancer. It's not no. curing third world hunger problems. But I think the thing that pandemic has also made everybody realize is 
there's a need for those things, right? Yes. Uh, and look at how currently the world has just gone, gone mad. And I wonder if just having little things like baseball or basketball or football, does that reduce our time yelling at each other on social media and, and all the things? Just having something else to fill our free time, uh, I, I think, is, is something valuable, something to, something to bring us together. Um, and, and to that, if something like that, you need good, honest people to cover it, right? So, sure, definitely. Uh, as weird as it seems, um, finding meaning in the mundane and how you can serve people in a way, I, I feel like the job has maybe taken on some more meaning that I didn't expect just because of the times that we're in. And I mean, you and I, you know, different colors, different races, but we can still have a conversation, even though it's a conversation that a lot of people would rather, you know, put their head in the sand and act like a turtle and not even pay attention. But if, you know, you don't get your head out of the sand and pay attention, there are things that you're going to miss and then there's going to be more problem instead of actually figuring out solutions. And I think that's where we are. A lot of people, we've not <laughs> done a very good job of being proactive with talking and figuring out, you know, solutions to issues that have been here for a long period of time. Like I've told a lot of people before, this country is the most reactive country I can ever remember. That's just me and where I sit. And it's crazy that now the basics are coming back to the forefront when they should have never been lost in the first place. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay, where did Chris go? Did I lose him? I think I did. Chris, you still there? Hey Siri, read messages. <laughs> yes. Hey Chris, I think we had a glitch because I'm not hearing you at all. Yes. Hello? Oh, I did guess I have to send another invite. Because, I mean, I was talking and then I was like, no, 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 no. Hey, Siri. Read messages.
Yes. For some reason, I'm not hearing you. Yes. Okay. Luther, can you hear me? Now I can. I don't know what happened. I because I mean, we, we, I was, you know, saying then all of a sudden, you know, I had a pop, and then it sounded like I had lost you. I mean, you were still in here, but I didn't even, you know. <laughs> hear you so i'm like did i you know did i i'm like did i just lose him do you want to start back over uh do you want to just maybe ask me a question and then this splice this all back together well yeah the, i mean they can I'll just, I'll just let them know to edit out this main part we'll just you know wherever okay. we pick up and we'll just go from there well you, you pick up and, and start me with the question and i'll just go from there well basically i was gonna get to like <clears throat> like you know, a, a lot of people, we've, you know, put our head in the sand and, you know, we as a country are the most reactive instead of proactive country that I can remember. So how as a journalist writer, do you feel like you can try to capsulize the things that sports can al allow people to come back together and have at least something so they don't go stir crazy in their own brain? Yeah, for me, I'm spending a lot of my time going and, and looking at things in the past uh, that I've covered athletes. In fact, I'm doing a list of the 100 greatest Vanderbilt players that I've covered. Um, that's how I've spent my time. And I think the last couple <laughs> of weeks have taken us to a completely different place as a country. And that's where I struggle in the media, right? Because sure. I, I typically have stayed out of politics because you can't win. No, um, you can't. At, at, at best, <laughs> um, you know, the people that agree with whatever you think, they're not going to like you anymore. And the people that don't agree with what you think are going to like you a lot less, and, and they may tune you out entirely. So sure. given that it's kind of a no-win situation – that is where I've kind of been on this as I've, I've mostly stayed out of, of the political <laughs> end of things. Now, look at, at this point, um, you know, look, we're, we're in a different world. I don't ever remember an America like what we've had. And, Me neither. And, and, and I view this, okay. There's the, there's the human being hat um, mm. that I just, I think the way that we handle this as people is try to have a gentle spirit uh, and help your brother out as, as much as you can. You know, I've had private conversations with black friends and just said, Hey, tell me what this is like. Okay. Um, and, and I think if you have a relationship with people and you're on good terms, that conversation is a lot different rather than if it's on Twitter or in the media, right? Because Definitely. You, you build relationships with people. <laughs> And you have a rapport with them. And within that conversation, you have freedom to kind of test the boundaries and say things. And and I hate to say even be insensitive, but maybe ask some questions and talk about some things that you can't talk about with strangers. And I found that I've got five or six friends in my life that I can do that with. And not only that, but for me, it's been good to learn um, about things that people have been through 
is African-Americans that is a white person, I just can't understand. Um, people throw the term white privilege around there a lot. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen a few people throw that around, and I'm like, look, at, at the end of the day, privilege doesn't matter. But, I mean... Well, here's, here's what is sad to me. White privilege to some people just means how everybody <clears throat> ought to be treated. Um, so if, if that makes me in somebody's terms privileged, I'm not really offended by that. I, I think it is a conversation stopper with a lot of people. Uh, but I, I've learned, look, the world that I live in and the world that a lot of my friends have lived in are just different worlds. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. I think America needs to <laughs> learn that and figure out how do we, how do we have those conversations privately? But what bothers me is how little margin for error there is to have that publicly because your heart can be in the right place and you can end up like Drew Brees. And I don't think that's good for America either. No. Cause I mean, I, I <clears throat> was hearing a few nationally syndicated sports talk shows talk about, you know, the apology that Drew Brees put out there and now one of his saints teammates called him out for his comments. And I'm like, at least he apologized, but, you know, usually for a lot of people will say in the community I live in and that the community I'm in, and as a blind African-American male, it's tough because I was never taught this, but from where I sit, it's hard to get away from it because you had to deal with even more than your counterparts have had to deal with. So unfortunately, I'm not going to sit here and say, Oh, you know, I hate such and such, such and such. I mean, there may be some things that, you know, I may not like, but I'm not going to have hate and vitriol because, you know, that may be something that they know. Yeah. And, I think what's important for people to know is you don't know what you don't know. Mm. Um, I've called several friends of mine and I've just kind of said, Hey, look, tell, tell me what it's like. Have you had times in your life where you experienced the police or just something different than, than I would. And every one of them has had a story mm-hmm. and you know, th- those things, and, and maybe maybe I'm the one that had my head in the sand, part of the problem is we have a media uh, that doesn't report honestly on things on both sides. And the fact that I'm saying both sides is a problem because the media should be about the truth and it should be about not. I agree with you. Right? I mean, yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. On the left wing, they're, spe- they're spewing propaganda. On the right wing, they're spewing propaganda. But there's nobody in the middle saying, hey, this is BS. Like, here's what it actually is. Here's what we're actually dealing with. I've not seen one person come to the middle and come to the table and say, hey, and I don't care what color you are, who's going to be the person that's going to step up and say, hey, what you're reporting is BS. Here's the actual truth. But the question is, when you get that person that's going to step out and be different, how will people, you know, accept them for what they're reporting. 
Yeah, and, and I'm you can't see me because we're doing this audio. I'm just sitting here nodding my head at the things you're saying. <laughs> um, and, and and see, that's the problem is you have a lot of good people who I think would like to speak out, but it almost doesn't matter what you say, how innocent it is, who you say it to. You're going to get killed on one or both sides, and I think that's one of the things that is – hindering the conversation publicly mm-hmm. is people are scared to death because even if you mean well, you could get canceled in a heartbeat. Uh, as, I don't think as, that, you know, people say we want to talk. I question, do we really want to talk or do we just want to, or do we, or do we just want to, you know, complain and wait for the first opportune moment to pounce on a wrong opinion as an old, know. as an old, as an old adage goes, the road is paved with good intentions. Yeah. But I wonder in the real <coughs> spirit of things, where's the truth? Because in the there's the truth is always in the middle. But who's gonna be the blind squirrel to find the nut and actually speak what the truth is supposed to be? Well, and the bigger problem is who's going to believe it if somebody finds the nut. And that's the problem. There's so much out there. It is just so hard to filter through and find what the truth is. And I think that's where everybody winds up being frustrated. I mean, what were you doing? Were you at the SEC tournament when Vandy was playing? And when did you know that there's possibility that college sports would be shut down with this virus thing because that was the first really big thing before the incident in Minnesota with George Floyd, the police and everything else. And it seems like the COVID-19 is sliding into the background of the headlines. And now we're back dealing with the elephant in the room of racial inequality again. Yeah. Um, I was at the SEC tournament. Vandy was playing Arkansas on, I guess it was a Wednesday night. Yeah, it was, I think, yeah, it was like the opening night. I mean, there was like barely, what, a thousand folks in there, maybe? Uh, I think there were more than that, but the way it, that it, it all... just sounded, it just sounded less than what you would normally get for a regular SEC tournament game. Yeah, well, it certainly was. And, and you know, I, re- I can't remember, I mean, the coronavirus was starting to become a thing to that point, right? Mm, but I don't yeah. think I walked into that arena thinking, this is going to be the last game you would ever cover. Right, right. And, and you know, we're in there and there's these conversations and, uh, you know, th- th- there starts to be this buzz of, you know, well, first of all, right, they play the first game and then Vandy's the second game. Yep. And then I think maybe before that, it's um, – they said we're not going to let any more fans in. Mm-hmm. And so that happened while I'm there, right? Like they play a game and then they make a decision. I think yeah. before game two. Mm-hmm. Vandy, Arkansas, about 825, 830. Yeah. Right. And, and then, um, you know, then there starts to be this kind of uncertainty of are they going to play any more of this at all? And, and then by the next morning before the noon game started – I want to say it was 10 in the morning. They made a decision to cancel the whole tournament. I was not at the arena at that time. I was talking to a friend that was down there. He called (laughs) me. He said, hey, I think they're getting ready to pull the plug on this whole thing, Mm. which they did. And then the NCAA tournament followed soon after. I was actually in the middle of writing some tournament previews for ESPN. And and that got plugged literally while I'm in the middle of doing it. So 
and so Duke Kane just happened in real time was crazy. Yeah, because I had heard, you know, I was seeing on Twitter, Duke and Kane just were going to pull out, and they were going to probably be one of the two number one seeds. Yeah, and then when we start seeing Duke and Kane just get, pull, you know, pull out of the tournament with the with the coronavirus, then you could just tell that a lot of things were going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, was it Kansas that pulled out first, Luther? I think it, I think both of them pulled out simultaneously. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I know both. that I had seen from a lot of college basketball insiders, first the conference tournaments I was starting to see like, I think the first tournament that canceled the rest of the day was the big was the Big Ten. Yeah. Then it was the A ten. Then it was all the other ones. And then I know the Big Twelve was going to have their games, and then they canceled right at right after the SEC did. And then it was like every other tournament after that. And then you started seeing maybe the NCAA would still play the tournament. The Big East at least got half of a game in opening day, but. Then they stopped after, you know, when they got to halftime. Why didn't they just cancel the whole tournament and started trying to play a half? Yeah. I mean, that that was the strange part to me, that well, the Big East would still try to get a game in. But they yeah, only could get a half. You said the word earlier, reactive. That's, that's kind of what we are as a country. and We're also kind of copycats. And I think when the first couple of leagues started pulling out, it was just inevitable. Yeah, inevitable was the right word. Because you knew that basketball was secondary because if I remember right, what really was a tipping point was the head coach of Nebraska. Yeah. I think I'm like, okay, there there's a tipping point here. If the head coach of Nebraska is not feeling well and they had to send him to a hospital – and at the time, they didn't know what it was. But when you started, you know, started to hear about that, it's like, okay, they're not going to have, A, the rest of the Big Ten tournament. It's only a matter of time because when I kept seeing and hearing that that coach of Nebraska wasn't doing very well, I'm like, okay, the Big Ten's going to cancel the rest of theirs, and then everybody else is going to fall in behind it. Because once that became a problem and they didn't leave, allow anybody to leave, then you yeah. started to see some signs then. And was the Rudy Gobert news, did that break tonight? That was before everything hit, because if my math was right, I saw that one on a Tuesday. Okay. So maybe that was the night before the SEC tournament. I was thinking it, it, was, it, was, Ru- it was Rudy Gobert first, because he was the first one that tested positive on that Tuesday. Okay. And then it was the Big Ten tournament where Nebraska and Indiana wasn't allowed to leave until later because, you know, the coach of Nebraska went to the hospital and then the other coaches and fans and everybody else wasn't allowed to leave yet. Yeah. So then at that point, I'm like, okay, all these major sports are going to shut down. And then the question is, who's going to have a good enough contingency plan to come back and finish. Because I'm still wondering with this new playoff format, if they're going to allow teams to finish out their schedule or how all that's going to work. Are they going to allow a 
a small capacity of fans or are they going to allow them, or are they going to still have, you know, players play in empty rinks and arenas and things like that? Because now they're testing players for this daily and even it's shifted to the college level because Oklahoma State had seven tests positive on, what was it, Tuesday and then, no, wait, Wednesday. And then Alabama had five tests positive yesterday for it. Yeah. So now it's even going to the college level. So with the SEC and, if you, and <clears throat> I think the Pac-12 are going to start allowing student athletes to come back on the campus. But where do you think college sports will be? And how do you think a contingency plan for college sports is going to be able to deal with this? Well, I think that you will see <clears throat> something close to normal college football. Not I, the, the crowds, I, I was getting to the point, I thought that they might have full-on crowds, and I've, I've heard privately that that may be what happens. I think Oklahoma State, from what I've seen, yeah. if they can get the go-ahead, they're going to try to get, you know, full capacity. But again, you're not going to have, you know, a lot of people within, you know, six feet of each other. So how are you going to be able to get a full stadium without, you know, people accidentally bumping into each other, running into each other, touching each other, trying to get to where they need to go and hoping and praying that the person that they have doesn't either have it or maybe even the person that's in the stadium that has it, they don't pass it to somebody else. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to that. First of all, I'm imagining if we social distance the whole time, I think it's impossible. I'm thinking of getting in and out of stadiums, uh, getting to bathrooms. I think it's going to be hard to manage. And concessions. Yeah, well, and and that too. I mean, every element of it. I don't know what they'll do with media. Um, I'm, that, I'm that was another question that I have. I'm like, you know, how are they going to – you know, the, the, fo- the folks, the broadcast teams that are in the press boxes – and then where are they going to put, you know, writers like you, I mean, like you and maybe Mitch Light and some other folks, where are they going to, you know, the people that cover Vandy and cover all the Big Ten college sports, how is how are they going to be able to disperse, you know, all of that? Well, I think part of the answer is in, okay, what are we seeing with this? Who is it killing? It's killing the people that, that have – pre-existing things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's killing older people. So uh, look, anything <clears throat> in life is a risk, right? If I go out and drive my car, you, um, you, you could get in a car crash. Yes. And, and so I think sometimes it's like we forget we have baked risk into anything we do. Sure. And if you look at the numbers and, and look, I'm not trying to be insensitive to anybody oh, sure. uh, because if you lose your life because of something, you know, one or two of those enough is, is serious to where, it's something to be wrecked, but you know, there are, there are, everything is a risk. And, and I think that the thing we're finding is the economy has collapsed and people are just losing their minds is, mm-hmm. you know, we were built on basic freedoms. And, and I think, you know, everybody in, in the world now, or at least in the, <clears throat> this part of it knows about this thing. They know the risks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I think there's a lot of people that are walking around that have, um, you know, have symptomatic and, and so it's not apparently dangerous to them. I suspect that, that I might've had it around the SEC tournament. I had or right before it, I had this mysterious flu like thing. And I, I didn't say it out loud, but my wife is a nurse Mm-hmm. And, and she said it a couple of weeks ago, she said, you know, I wonder if you didn't have this thing. And it was, I didn't feel great for a few days, but mm-hmm. it was never life threatening or anything. It was kind of like, for me, it was like, it was, it was basically flu. a concern. Yeah. And, and so I think you, you've got to be concerned about these things, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is killing people. But at the same time, you look at the world as it's unfolded without us returning to some kind of norm and sports mm-hmm. is part of that. I think that, we can exercise some common sense. If you were a person that's really scared of it, you can stay home. Um, but I, I think that what they've done, and you've already seen colleges that have just said, look, we're going to not come back after Thanksgiving break because that's when we're worried about it coming back. And in the winter months, you know, mm-hmm. there's a heat element to it that makes it, uh, I think that kills it quicker. I just think that what you're probably going to see is, is something that's not full on college football, um, but, it, but it'll be college football in some form. Maybe that means more of a sitting at home watching on TV. Uh, but I think the next few weeks are going to be key, right? You sure. have the riots and the, the protests. <clears throat> and so social and we're still not And we're still not done with that front. Because... Right. And, and so social distancing has kind of gone out of the window there. Um, so I, I think you've got sort of a test case of, okay, let's, let's see what happens if there are dangerous spikes after that. Um, and if there aren't, it seems to me that the common sense thing to do um, is, is let's open it back up and hope for the best. Careful. Yeah, right. I mean, let's see if we can get back to with you. Like, when you did the Vandy SportsCon thing happen? First, when you were doing the writing and the rivals and everything else, or when did rivals and Vandy Sports come, and then you were able to get your Vandy Sports report writing, and then you were able to get it for two hours radio wise, and now what you're doing in podcast mode now? Here's the progression of that. I uh, got asked to start VandySports.com, which is part of the Rivals Network in 03, mm-hmm. and have done that ever since. It's still the same website. Um, the Vandy Sports Report became the thing that I would do on Saturday mornings on radio. It's now the Vandy Sports Podcast. Okay. And so that's just kind of been the progression of, of how those things all went. When does the Vandy Sports Podcast drop? Several times a week, we dropped one yesterday, and we okay. dropped one earlier in the week. During the season, we will do it four to five times. During the off-season, it's usually two to three. Mm-hmm. And I think right now it's going to be more like two just because there's not much to discuss. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like how, you know, how are you, you know, giving Vandy fans that come to your site or, you know, listen to the pods, how do you keep it fresh without not having much content. Well, it's crazy. If you're creative, you'll always find something to talk and write about. There's current events, there's off-season news, there's what's going to happen with college baseball. 
So on the podcast end, I mostly stick to that. I have had some guests, like I had Carson Fulmer on. He was the star pitcher on the 2014 national title team and then the, yep. the runner-up team in 15. I, I remember that national title team. That was a, that was a bunch of scrap. That was a scrappy bunch that basically came from nowhere. Yeah. And, and that was a fun team to cover. So on the podcast end, I've done some of those things. And on the, the website end, I put together something I've called the Vandy sports 100. It's the 100 best athletes I've covered since I started this in 03 and that covers baseball, men's basketball and football. And so I do two of those most of the days during the weekday, I'm coming towards the end of that. Um, you know, next week I'm going to have draft stuff to cover. Vanderbilt's got some players who are going to be picked, some players who might be picked uh, and some high school signees who are going to be picked or might be picked. And so that'll kill a week or two. And then of course those players will go through the summer and sign or not sign. So those are stories. And then next thing you know, we'll be to August and that's fall camp. And yep. at that point you have lots to, to do. So speaking of football, Gary Mason just completed what his, I'm trying to think what year was this for him last year? Seven? Six. Six. In his six years, he's had a below 500 record with what? Four bowl appearances, if I'm right, three or four? Two. Two? Okay. Because I know they've had the – they had the bowl in Houston, and then they had, what, the Liberty Bowl, I think? No, that was Franklin. Yes. Franklin took them the bowls in 11, 12, and 13. And yeah, because I, I know it was Music yeah. City. I know it was Music City. But Bobby Johnson really set the tone and got them back to somewhat prominence. And I don't know if you were covering Vandy at that point. Let's talk a little bit about coaches a little bit. The coaches you've covered at the college level, what have they brought to you as a writer? And how long do you, did it take you to build a trust and a rapport with those coaches? And what have those coaches brought to you as a sports writer? Well, I always liked Bobby. Um, it got a little more contentious with me and him at the end. Um, you know, he just – he never really would change his offenses that much. He stuck with Ted Kane, who's a wonderful human being, and, and I loved as a person. Uh, his offense Ted, was stale. Yeah, well, that's that's the nice way. Um, <laughs> and, and at Vanderbilt, there's not a lot of pressure. I think they started putting pressure on Bobby towards the end to change coordinators. He didn't want to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, And I think he went to the bowl game, but I think there was too much water under the bridge. And he just – I know he just decided to resign, I think, in the middle of, what, the 07 season or maybe something like that. I can't remember exactly when, you know, he decided I'm just going to, you know, resign before they fire me and just go ahead and just step out of the coaching ranks. Because he's always done well with colleges that really didn't have anything. like the Furmans of the world. And then when he came to Vanderbilt, because he had a, you know, good reputation as the Furman head coach, and basically he had to build to take Vandy from where they were to where he could get them. Um, 
Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can. Okay. I don't know if yeah. you could. I don't know if you could hear what I was, you know, saying. I mean, it was. I mean, because I can't remember when he actually resigned, and then the offensive line coach basically had to take over as a head coach. And I really don't know how much experience he had as a coach, to be honest with you. Besides coaching the offensive line, did I really know anything about the guy? Yeah, Bobby quit in, I guess, late July of 2010. I think he timed it on purpose where they had no choice but to give Robbie Caldwell a, cho a choice. And, and Robbie is probably my favorite human being I've ever covered. Uh, <laughs> one of my two. I, I think him, he and Tim Corbin. <clears throat> uh, but Robbie just, I don't think, was organized enough to be a head coach. And that's right. the trait you've got to have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with Bobby, it got a little more contentious towards the end, like I said, with yeah. just with him being so stubborn. And as a writer, you got to do your job. Your sure. job is not to be their buddy. Um, with Franklin, I, I really liked so much of what he did as a coach. I, I thought that – I don't think that he was an X's and O genius, but I thought just his energy and his motivation and his not missing a detail – Sure. was phenomenal and I think it's a model that, that I've seen you know I've seen it work with two coaches I've seen it work with him and Tim Corbin they just don't miss a trick uh the James was very manipulative and tough to work from and in, in, with the media standpoint and frankly I thought he could be a bully uh but leaving that aside and I and I think under his watch that was when all the scandal and stuff broke out in every news channel, every radio outlet, every, you know, everybody who was anybody was covering that, that little, that, that little fiasco with the Vandy football players that happened. Um, you know, I mean, everybody who's anybody, unless they were sleeping under a rock, like Rip Van Winkle doesn't know about the rape allegations and everything else and the trial that went along with it. I mean, that's just one of those that's, was kind of sad and contentious at the same time. Yeah, and I think you had a lot of people in the media that had pent up frustration with James that probably took that time to take it out on him. Um, and I think James knew in the middle of that, he, he was probably not long for that job. I just don't think it was going to be tenable right. for him and Vanderbilt from that point on. Sure. And the current head coach, I know he's changed, what, both of his coordinators, if I'm right, I know, I know he's changed both of his coordinators, Mason has, and do you think year seven for him is going to be a make or break for him as a head coach, or do you think with Candace Story Lee as the new ensconced athletic director at Vanderbilt, do you think that he's going to get at least a little bit more time to get things done. I think he'll the get new the athletics time. regime. Yeah, because of the contract. Uh, David Williams left him a, a gift that just has kept on giving. <laughs> um, with David signed him, and this happened, I want to say, maybe around Halloween of 2018, right before they hit that winning streak in the season. David basically gave Derek a contract that was more or less guaranteed um, through at least 2019 and, and probably more like uh, 2020 or 21. Uh, mm -hmm. But because from what I understand, 
Malcolm Turner was trying to get rid of David last year. I mean, of, of Derek. Me, Derek last year. Because mm-hmm. I know he's it been was going to cost about fifteen million, and that was just too much to bite off. He didn't have the political capital to get that done. I think this year it drops to seven. I don't think Candace is going to pull the trigger on that. I don't think they're going to have a good year. I think they're going to win two to three games. I just don't see them having the horses, and the schedule's not easy. <clears throat> I think the money's going to make it prohibitive, and I think that the financial hit that they and everyone else took with COVID mm-hmm. um, probably gives them an additional layer of cover to, to not deal with it. But let's say – I think Turner's still there, or did, or was or was he the guy that le- that just left not too long ago? They were still looking for a new AD, or was that? Because I forgot how that worked out. Because I know they had found an AD, then he left after about a little bit of time. Then Candace really was the interim, and now I think he's full time. Because it, it was just crazy on the AD front, but if. Vanderbilt decides to go in another direction. Who do you think, hypothetically, if you were in that chair, is on your short list of about two to three, maybe four people that Vanderbilt should go after? Well, I know that when Malcolm Turner was looking around, uh, some people on his list were Blake Anderson at Arkansas State. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Healy was <coughs> high on his list, if not the top. He had some boosters that were pushing for that. I think Healy would be the guy that if they make a change, I target. He grew up a Vanderbilt fan. His uncle was All-American there. He's from here. He turned around Austin P, which was a school that had – some challenges of its own, although I'll be at different ones, but on a different mm-hmm. level, but that's a program that hadn't won. Um, if I'm making a change, that's where I go, but I'm skeptical that that's going to happen. And we know what Coach Corbin has brought to Andy baseball that has put them in the discussion for the College World Series almost every year. But what other traits, since when you covered Corbin, would you say he's brought to Vanderbilt that a lot of other coaches have not? Well, first of all, he's organized. Mm-hmm. He leaves nothing to chance. He's got a plan <clears throat> for everything. Second, I think he is um, – He's always willing to learn and look at different ways of doing things and try to find things that people have done. Another walks of life, he asks a lot of questions. He gets seeks a lot of feedback. And I think the third thing that makes him special is he's relatable. Um, you know, he writes a lot of handwritten thank you notes. He builds relationships with a lot of people. Um, and probably the fourth thing is he's just a tireless worker. Uh, and, and, and probably if you want to go five, he's very, very intelligent. So really, I think it's the combination of all those things. I just think he's a special human being. Um, and there's a reason he wins the way he does. Uh, there just aren't many out there that have got the combination of all the things that he has. 
What made that 59-win Vandy team so dominant and special at the same time? Even though they had their fair share of challenges, because I know they had some, you know, maybe one two-game losing streak, but at the end of the day, it really didn't hurt them. Are you talking about the 2019 team? Yep. Oh, man, that's the best team he's ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and, you're, and you're probably not going to get that team again. Well, you if, know, you, if you asked him, um, but <laughs> if, if but, you do, either <clears throat> you know, either there's a, either there's a higher force that we don't know that's at work, or Corbs is just good at what Corbs is just good at what he does. Well, let, let's back up a little bit. He has had probably five or six elite teams. You had 2007, which lost to Michigan. Everybody Heartbreaking. Heart, I mean, that, that was the one that normally David Price would never come out of the bullpen. Yeah. But he did that night. And it, I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. And, I mean, you could just tell when that season ended, it was – I don't even know what the word was because I was listening to that whole regional all the way through. Yeah. And it was Vandy's to win. And I think if they would have won that, they either would have had to travel or they could have, or they would have stayed at home for the Supers. They think, home. Yeah, because I think they were a number one seed, I think, or something like that, or close to it. Yeah. Um, you know, but – that was that was an elite team. 2011 was a very underrated elite team that was really about as good as, as 2019. They just didn't win at all. The, the 2013 team was 26-3 and three in the league. Uh, 14, they win it all. 15, they nearly win it all. And, and then last year, which I think was his best team, and, and to circle back to the question that you asked me, that team was built a little differently. It had mm-hmm. great pitching, but it was structured differently. Um, you know, your, your two and your three were your, your best starters there. I mean, you just, you just had tough outs across the board. I mean, you had two yeah. big boppers, but then you had other guys, like at the top of the lineup, that would wear a pitcher out that you could see everything. And then everybody else, you know, they were able to do things – at the other parts of the lineup that most teams couldn't do because you had two guys that could really rake, but you had other guys that could do other things. Even if they couldn't hit defensively behind the pitching staff, you knew what you were going to get and they could get out of messes. Yeah. And I think you hit on the key there, Luther, you had at the lineup, you had, the two guys that are debatably at their peak, the best two hitters they ever had. That's all. JJ Bladay. Yeah. Those guys were incredible. You had behind them, you had Steven Scott, who I think was. To me, he, to me, now this is just me. Steven Scott, Harrison Ray, and oh, who was the other one? There were three guys on that team, to me, that were very underrated, but I think that's the way they liked it. Yeah, Scott, to me, is one of the three or four most underrated baseball players that Corbin had. He should have been an all-ACC guy. He wasn't. I think should he's have been. overshadowed by the others. Um, you know, if you go around the diamond, you had Philip Clark, a catcher, yeah. who was all-SEC. You had Infante at first, who was kind of the weak link. Um, 
in, in the lineup in terms of hitting, but yeah, but def- defensively, times. but defensively, you knew what you had with him because yeah. at first he, I mean, it didn't matter if the throw was you know to his right, to his left, straight on him in the dirt, high. He could just he could just pick him, and that's what you needed at first, and that's what you got with him. Yeah, yeah, they had that, and they had it at short with Ethan Paul, who was oh yeah. Goal rated player both ways second Ray wasn't a great hitter but the bat was coming and the defense could really flash spectacular at the end like remember the way that the Louisville game ended the Luke Smith game when he made oh, yeah. diving catch um you know you had Martin at third with him <clears throat> Scott and left you had um you had DeMarco in the outfield who was was a really good outfielder and of course what? you have Bay. What did DeMarco bring to that bunch? Because you had shortstop and center field and second base, and they always say you have to have the middle of the diamond covered. And I think with the, with the three, you know, that we mentioned in center, short, and second, you had your infield and outfield covered in the middle. Yeah, I think he brought a little bit of pop. He always seemed to get a lot of big postseason hits. And he just kind of had that New York swagger about him. <laughs> and sometimes as a team that's trying to get a little confidence, which, let's face it, that's where they were in in 18 uh, at the end of the year. I think a guy like a Pat DeMarco um, really goes a long way in that regard. And then this year's team, I mean, yeah, you, you know, before the season stopped, you had a lot of new faces in key places, but it felt like they were hitting, you know, their stride in the non-conference with conference play coming up, and who knows where that team could have gone. Yeah, and and by all rights, I guess we're playing, you know, in a normal world Super Regionals this weekend. I'm I'm shocked if they're not in it. I think the pitching for them – that staff was just going to be so deep. You had Especially Lighter. I mean, he oh, had oh, yeah. Lighter. Oh, my God. I mean, what was that start where he had double-digit strikeouts? He had, like, what, 12? Yeah. And I, I can't remember what game – I can't remember what start it was, but I think it was in the midweek. But you could just tell the way he was pitching in the midweek that if Corbs had to make a choice that after Hickman and Rocker – because it was interesting when you had an Ethan Smith, and then you had an Al Lighter in the mid, and you had a Lighter in the midweek behind that. But if he wanted to, could he have, you know, flip flopped and had Smith in the midweek and had Lighter for the weekends? Or do you think Corbin was going to keep Lighter as the midweek guy and then see where he would land later? Well, what they were doing, because that was a portion of the season where they were playing a lot of five-week games or five-game five, five game weeks, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And they would go um, on the weekends. Of course, they'd go Rocker. Hickman. Hickman when they were healthy. And then you would throw Eater in there. Yeah, I forgot about Jake Eater. Yeah, who was a preseason uh, late first-rounder but wasn't pitching it to that level. Then, of course, you had Leiter and Smith. Mm-hmm. Who were midweek? Yeah, and and look, those two alone are more talented than ninety something percent of most people's weekend one and two. 
So you're in a pretty advantageous position to begin with. Corbin's thing has always been to let those guys work through their bumps. I think that the thing that would have been interesting is they didn't have a lot of lefties in the bullpen. That's where right. he so well the year before. Um, you know, that he, I don't know if he would have gone – and going ahead and moved Eater back to the pin on the weekend. My, my thought is he probably would have let Eater try to pitch out of his difficulties. Sure. Um, unless they had a glaring need for a lefty there, which would have kind of given him cover to do that. But I just thought that they had enough arms. And, and look, we haven't even gotten into Laboki and – yeah, like, I, I, and Schultz and all those freshmen who just threw strike. Yeah, and strike and the clo- and the closer who came in and closed a lot of games out. He was having a little bit of trouble. Do you think, as the season progressed, do you think they would have gone closer by committee, or do you think they would have kept Tyler Brown in the closer's role? And where do you think Scott Brown would have played into all this? I know he's uh, still the pitching coach now. Yeah, I know a lot of Vandy fans, you know, give Scott Brown a lot of grief as the pitching coach. I mean, I have no problem with him, but I wonder at what point do you think Scott Brown either helps or hurts the pitching staff? Well, there's two things. Um, I think Tyler Brown probably would have figured it out in the closer's role, but you never know. Um, Sure. didn't look like vintage Tyler Brown. No, I think he didn't. Two, with Scott Brown, you know, Scott took a lot of heat. Mm-hmm. Middle of last, end of last decade, because they just weren't throwing strikes. Um, you know, and, and it's hard to know, okay, what it what in that is a pitching coach's responsibility? Sure. The hole in their recruiting philosophy. And I kind of asked him about that in an interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, they had a group of freshmen that just were throwing strikes one after another. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they, they were just, seen th- they were just throwing heat. Polished. Yeah. And, and and so his answer was, you know, it's just, sometimes it's just the horses you have. And I think that, you know, you have issues throwing strikes at Vanderbilt. Oh, no, you, you got your mic kind of cut out again. You're going to have to repeat what you were saying before it was a cutout. Sorry. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I can now. Sorry. Okay, yeah, Tyler Beatty is an example. Tyler, back in his career at Vanderbilt, had a lot of issues throwing strikes, and mm-hmm. those have sort of carried over into the major leagues to some degree. Um, I, I think to some point a, a pitcher is what he is, and, and right. sometimes you get these stories, and I, I'm thinking of – Jake Arrieta at the major league level, where guys become a completely different guy mid-career. Right. Um, but but probably you're stuck with the horses they've got. And, and, and certainly Scott Brown, the questions people asked about him kind of went away when, when he had all those freshmen that came in and just were throwing strikes from the get-go this year. Where do you see this team next year? I mean, do you think it'll still be new faces in key places and – where do you think if Jason Gonzalez decides to come back, if he does, where do you see him fitting in all this if he decides to come back to Vanderbilt and finish out? You know, I think we'll have the answers to – or we'll be closer to these answers a lot more in a week when the draft is gone because, 
you have three or four guys that could go or not go. Uh, Mason Hickman would be one. I, I think most of the rankings I'm seeing are, are not having Mason go. Uh, so he, if you bring Mason Hickman back, you've got a first-team preseason All-American in your rotation. That's a big deal. But let me follow up with this before you continue your answer. Sorry to, you know, sorry I've been cutting you off off and on because there's been a lot of things that when we talk about, you know, guys that are drafted, how many guys on this team do you think are ready to go to the next level? And how many of you guys do you think could use another year, even though they're ranked high and they may not get ranked this high again if they came back to school to maybe improve their draft stock at the MLB level and wait for when they come back with the 10 rounds instead of doing five. I think that Hickman and and Tyler Brown are as ready as they're going to be. I think Eater could get better, but I don't think it's going to matter because somebody's going to offer him enough money to go. And I I think the wild card really is Ethan Smith. I don't think he's going to get drafted. I think Ethan can get better and mature a little bit. Sure. Uh, But I, I don't think he's going to get drafted. So I think he'll be back anyway, but he's a kid that, a year from now, he's got a chance to really be special. First rounder, it's not going to surprise me. He's got a he's got a real Ethan Smith. If he can just control his pitches a little better and get more pinpoint, hit the strike zone a little better than the rate he was throwing in the midweek, I think he has a chance to really be something special. He's got yeah. he's got a good fastball, not great. I say like high eighties, low nineties. But I think if he can just control his off-speed pitches, like the breaking ball, the change-up, and maybe a slider and a curve, maybe. I don't know if, if that's all the pitches that he throws. But it's the other pitches besides his fastball that I think sometimes it gets him in trouble. Yeah, 98 with the pretty good slider doesn't grow on trees. No. I think it's going to be the, the middle part of the game and, and maybe the change-up or whatever that other pitch is that, that – Maybe a slider curve. Yeah. Something like that. Sure. Because, I mean, it just seemed to me from time to time when he was trying to get a feel of his other pitches where it got him in trouble and he would be at 60 pitches by the fifth. And then you have to really watch him to see how much longer he can go. Yeah. And maybe the best you can get out of him is six innings instead of, you know, possibly seven. But I think for him – it's going to come. And the same thing with Eater. He's, you know, he's got, again, another guy that's got the stuff. Just got to contr- learn how to control it better. Yeah. Who else do you see with this team next year? Where do you see or how good do you think this picking staff can be and how good do you think the arms in the field and outfield and bats when when baseball comes back around for the 2021 season, where do you see this team under Corbs next year? And I know the schedule is probably going to be new because I don't know, you know, with the schedule not being completed, if that's something that is going to be taken into consideration with the teams that did not get a chance to finish up playing. 
or if you know they're if on the 2021 schedule with a schedule that couldn't get played or completed in 2020 if that's going to be something that you know college baseball is going to take a look into and what is this new model that they're talking about in college baseball that I've seen from D1 and a lot of other college baseball outlets. Yeah, I think that their pitching next year is either going to be elite or historic. Um, <laughs> it's just a matter of Hickman, Brown, those guys, do they get picked, do they go or not? Um, mm -hmm. But even if, if they lose those two guys, and Eater and, and Hugh Fisher too, by the way, who wasn't going to pitch this year, but may get drafted. They were, they're going. They're just so much depth there that they were going to be great any way you slice it. Well, I think it, it on the bats. Um, yeah, but I mean, they're going to be they're going to be an elite team that should be in Omaha, even if they hit a little bit. Where what do you what do you think this new baseball model that college baseball is talking about that I've you know I've seen in bits and pieces what they're trying to propose or what they're looking to try to push forward with. I don't know if you've yeah. seen anything. I don't know if you've seen anything about a new model that they're trying to, you know, implement with college baseball and what it's going to entail. Yeah. Well, the big thing will be the calendar, which is what they're discussing. They're talking of starting the season about a month later in mid-March. Of course, that would push everything back. It would start the College World Series around the 4th of July. I think it's a slam dunk all the way around. I think baseball needs to play when the weather's nicer. I think exactly. You don't, pl don't play Valentine's Day when it's cold. Well, it's just not fair to these teams in the Big Ten and the Northeast that mm -hmm. they can't even think about playing until the, March. Yeah, when anybody would come until April. And so you help those schools. And I think that moving it out of the NCAA tournament where it competes with that, uh, with the basketball tournament that is, helps. And I think all of a sudden you have something for college sports fans that you want in July rather than the endless run-up to college football and fall camp, which just gets to be tiresome. So I think it's a win all the way around. Yeah, I would love to see that. And then, you know, I would love to see where it's not it's not bumping up against spring training in Major League Baseball, where spring training has its own merit because at the end of hoop season, you can kind of get into the, you know, baseball mode of spring training. And then when the Major League season opens up in April – you have baseball plus the minor leagues and everything else where you will have a full summer yeah. of baseball. Let's talk hoops a little bit because I know, you know, we've had some glitches and stuff, and I know I've taken more than your time. And, I mean, you know, with everything that's going on, I know you probably have to get back to work pretty soon. So, in the Jerry Stackhouse era year one, where do you think his strengths are and where do you think he, you know, can improve? And I know there's a few Vandy players in the transfer portal and who do you think he's going to be able to get? Cause I mean, Scotty, you know, you're bringing back uh, Dylan DeSue, you're bringing back Scotty Pippen Jr. I don't know who's going to be his point guard next year, but that's going to be an interesting spot. Plus some other guys, you know, maybe, I don't know if their shooting guard's coming back. 
but some guys that can give him some more, you know, depth in his lineup that he can go with. Yeah, I think the strengths, I mean, he did a good job developing players. You look at what Aaron Neesmith did, and, and now he's maybe a top 10 in the draft guy, where he was a end of the first round guy, according to most people coming the season. I think that Stackhouse deserves some credit for running a lot of sets and things for him to highlight mm-hmm. his strengths and getting him some shots. And so there's that. And you look at what they did with Saban Lee as well, too. I think the development end of things is good. Um, you, you heard coaches speak a lot of times in complimentary terms of mm-hmm. the way that he drew up sets and things like that. And so I think those are the two things you look at. I think the thing that I wonder is, well, is is he a fit as a college coach? He likes to play a lot of golf. I think he has embraced the pro lifestyle. In college, it's different. You know, you're you're getting to work at early in the morning and and you're grinding. You're out there and recruiting a lot. I just don't think he's used to that. I I question whether it's what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. they're not out there nearly as much as others in recruiting. And so the thing to me is how much does Jerry Stackhouse want to be a college coach? How much is he willing to be out there on the road? Uh, does he leave for the NBA if a head coach or assistant job comes calling? I think that he would. Uh, the question to me is just how does he adapt after this first year? Uh, what does he really want to do? And I think that really determines how long he's here. Coordinators wise for football, where do you since we since we talked about earlier, I don't think Vanderbilt has the horses this year with the quarterback from Clemson Kelly Bryant transferring in, how much do you think he can help the offense now with the new offensive coordinator and then what was it? Ted Roof is the new defensive coordinator, I guess. I'm if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember. Because I mean, I, I saw them. I saw the names on Twitter, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. Because I know Coach Mason was, you know, filling out his coaching staff and things like that. And then I kept seeing names and things like that. Like, where do you see the offense, and where do you see the defense heading into this year? And who do you think could be? A Keyshawn Vaughn who got drafted, a Kalijah Lipscomb. I think he also got drafted, if I'm right. So you got you got those guys, but who's going to fill those spots? And what is the ceiling for this Derek Mason bunch? What what do you feel like? What do you feel the ceiling is besides the wins that you could possibly see for this team this year? Yeah, well, uh, the quarterback will be Ken Seals. He, well, I think wait. So you think you think he beat you think he beat out Kelly Bryant for the job? Well, Bryant went to Missouri last year. Oh yeah, uh, and he exhausted did. his eligibility. Um, right. So he won't be a factor. Uh, they, right. they will. Uh, I think Seals will be the quarterback. He put up huge numbers at big school football in Texas. Looked fairly good in the spring. They're okay. going to go to more of a spread offense with with. Um, Todd you, Fitch is the Fitch. Okay. Gabowski got got let go. Yeah, Ty Fitch. I, just, I don't think they have um, 
I don't think they're super strong in personnel on that side of the ball. Their offensive line has got some big issues. They don't have another Vaughn on the team. I think no. Cam Johnson out of Brentwood Academy can be a good player for them. Uh, can they protect seals and get into the ball will be the thing. On the defensive side, they're going to be really experienced. I don't know how good they're going to be. To me, they've got a lot of guys. Um mm-hmm. Moore is, is the guy to watch. He's getting some first-round buzz. He's never really been a good player for them. Moore? A kid who's an athlete. And then on the defensive line, they've got a lot more bodies there. They've got some kids that have transferred from Oklahoma and Florida and recruited a little better and have a nice mix of experience there. So I think if they can generate um, half <laughs> things on the front four, they've got a chance to get better, but that's where it'll start. And also – where do you think in the schedule do you think they could find winnable games? Because I know last year their schedule was flat brutal when they opened the season with the SEC power at home against Georgia. Then they went to Purdue, played LSU, played Northern Illinois and survived that, lost to UNLV in a game that they should not have. So... As we always talk about with Vanderbilt, where do you see the winnable games? Because it seems like in the schedule, they don't get a lot of breaks. The winnable ones, uh, the most winnable is week one against Mercer. They have games against Louisiana Tech and Colorado State that I think odds makers right now are <laughs> virtual toss-ups. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, it becomes hard to find them. I think Ole Miss is one that they – you know, they've beaten Ole Miss, I think, what, maybe seven in the last 12 years? Something like that. Yeah, that's always a game where they seem to have a chance most years. Lane Kiffin is changing some things there. So sometimes with scheme changes, you can catch an opponent that's a little bit vulnerable. Uh, so I think those are, are probably their best shots. Um, I just think it's going to be really tough for them to get 500 this year. What about what about South Carolina? Where do, where do you – where where do you see that game? I mean, because usually they've had mo- you know opportunities against South Carolina, but not a lot of them. Yeah, I don't think they've beaten Carolina since what oh seven or oh eight now. And I that was when they're and that was when they were ranked sixth. Well, yeah, it was, and, and that season fell apart after Vanderbilt beat them. Yep. Uh, but I think that was Spurs last year, wasn't it? Uh no, no, Spurs last year was. 15? Something like that. Because I, I know Vandy went in there basically as a double, as more than a 20 point underdog and went in there and basically dismantled them. Yeah, well, they, they beat them, I think, in 06 when Carolina was 5 and 0 and really yeah. not that good. And then they beat them in Nashville the year that Johnson took them to the bowl and they went 7 and 6. But I think that might have been their last win. Look, Carolina um, is not going to be a, a popular pick to finish. In the top half of the league, that's one that would be one of their more gettable games. But, I mean, the Gamecocks, just for whatever reason, have owned them. So, that's one of those I'm going to be a little skeptical that they can win until they start doing it. And before we close this out, where do you see the SEC in football and where do you see it in other sports? Like, who – right now in your mind are the cream of the crop in football and basketball and baseball, like which teams basically 
stand out above the others? Well, football, I think the interesting thing is that Georgia and LSU have made it interesting for Alabama. Um, you know, you've always got Auburn that could sneak up in a given year. I think Florida with Dan Mullen's going to be back. Tennessee is got it. The, the league, I think, at the top is going to be more interesting for the foreseeable future mm -hmm. in football. Basketball, you know, everybody keeps saying the SEC is getting better. You know, they're recruiting well. Uh, boy, where where do you see? It? I mean, where where do where do you see it? Because besides Kentucky, and with what coach that coach LSU is doing, who almost got fired almost because of something with Coach Wade that almost you know got him taken down. But he's recruited well. But where do you see? the other teams besides Kentucky and, and LSU and Florida. After that, from four on down, you don't know what you're going to get. Well, I think we're leaving Tennessee out. Rick Barnes has done a good job and is recruiting at a really high level. The, the issue with Barnes is it seems like he's done more with less. You look at the Grant Williams and Schofield teams – Yep. That was just a team of three-star recruits that nobody saw coming. And then, they, and then they ran into a bigger team called Purdue. Yeah, they did. And you look at what he did at Texas and why many went to the tournament 16 out of 17 years. But mm -hmm. other than when he had Kevin Durant, never got the top-end results on the weekend. So I think right. that's the, the biggest mystery to me is them and, and whether Auburn can sustain what it had done uh, you know, Auburn wasn't as good as we thought it would be last year, but the postseason was coming. That's when the Tigers got hot a year ago. Yep. To me, you know, Kentucky's always there. The question is, can Kentucky get back to that national title level? Uh, you generally it's don't just, it's just challenge, gonna It's just going to depend on, you know, what Calipari is going to get out of what he brings in. Right. Because all these players that he brings in, he's got some five-star recruits. He's got some fours. He's got some threes. I mean, he's – He's got them stacked across the board, but depending on what he gets out of those athletes and how much he can get out of them is going to determine an awful lot. Yeah, and, and you got a lot of good teams in the league now. You got a lot of great coaches. You got Buzz Williams. You know, Ben Hallen has had success. I think Kermit Davis is a really good coach. Frank Martin's been to a Final Four. Uh, yeah. I just think it's the, the problem with the league, and I think you're going to see this, you know, it's going to be a lot like the Big Ten was last year. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many great teams you have, but you got to have a lot of good ones, it would seem. Yeah, basically basically you got the top half. Who's, who's going to step into the middle and who's going to be stuck at the bottom? Right. Because, right. You, because every year the league fluctuates. And how did Stallings get the best out of that team that won an SEC tournament, but then lost in the first round of the NCAA tournament in Tampa. Oh, man. That, that's the million-dollar question. How did that question. happen? You, you go back and look at all the talent they had with Taylor and Jenkins and Azili and a little yeah. bit of that Ogilvy, and that was just a team that really was short on hardware and, and postseason accomplishment. I think mm -hmm. that's, um, you know, a, a big reason he ended up losing his job when he did. And I, know, and I know he recruited the Scott Hunleys, Matt Freegies. I know Chuck Moore came in. 
And then there was a point there that I liked that to me that was like the Atiba Prater teams of Andy basketball. And that would be Russell Lakey. Would you yeah. say he was the glue that kept Kevin Stallings' first teams rolling to where they got? Uh, you know, that team, I, I think I would – there were a lot of glue guys on that team. You had Huerta, you had Corey Smith. Yep, you did. You had Lakey, you had Hunley. You just had guys that knew their were You role. had garbage guys. Yeah, that wasn't an overly talented team. You had one star in Freegy, and then yep. you had a kid in Mario Moore that could jump up from time to time mm-hmm. and give you a star performance. But I think there were a lot of glue guys on that team. And then Jermaine Beal, as a freshman, came in with a loaded bunch. And then when it was his team and, you know, guys, you know, were moving on and the players that came in, I think Brad Tinsley was with him, I think, at that time. And – a few other guys that were on that team. Do you think that was the start of the beginning of the end for Stallings? Yeah, you know, I, I think you can really go back to Shane Foster, mm-hmm. um, who, in my opinion, is the best player I've covered there. But, you know – Especially especially when you make – what what was it? What was that that game again at Memorial when it was rocking? Ten threes? Yeah. A ridiculous just, number where he just went bonkers. Yeah, destroyed. And you normally and you normally don't single handedly. Yeah. You look at that, Luther, they had him, they had they brought in buyers as a transfer. You mentioned Beal. What, what was it what I'm trying to think. Was that the year that Scooches and Cage were on that team, or was that later? Uh Scooches and Cage were on the team that got the sweet sixteen and got beat in the Jeff Green game. Why didn't the official call a freaking travel? <laughs> because look, I uh, as as weird as it was, I was on X. I was on my transportation to go somewhere on that Saturday, and that was the only topic on the bus that we talked about the whole way. Why didn't the official call the travel on Jeff Green? I have no answer for that one. I I still. I still can't believe the fact that the official didn't call the travel and he was right in front of it. I know. And then the other team that got to the 316 when they beat NC State and then lost to UConn. Yeah. What happened on that team? Because I think those those are the only two teams that have gotten close. They were. The 16 team just got as much as it had. I mean, they ran into UConn. UConn won the national title that year. That was just a talent mismatch. Yeah, and, the, and what was it? The, what was it? The East bracket? think so. Yeah. Seems like, it seems like every time Mandy makes a run, they're always in the East bracket, and they would always run into that team because mostly Mandy would either be a six seed or, you know, then they lost to Northwestern in a game that they basically, with Bryce Drew, I mean, with Riley, with what was it, Riley LaChance, and that was the only shooter that they had. If my math is right, because I know Bryce Drew was there for a cup of coffee and an espresso. Yeah. And he finally got Vandy to the NCAA tournament without, without having to play the play-in game, but they just ran into a Johnny Dawkins-led Northwestern bunch. 
that after that, you really haven't heard from since. No, uh, and fair question is when they get back, because I don't think it's happening soon. So do you think Coach Stackhouse can take a Vandy team to the NCAA time, or do you think it's going to have to be another coach that can take the kids that he brings in and takes them to the NCAA tournament. And you know the old adage, if there's a new coach that's coming in town and they get to the NCAA tournament, he's like, oh, that was, those were Stackhouse's kids. Yeah. I think it's, it's all back to does he want to recruit? Because I look at the kids he's bringing in, and they're not Neesmiths and Saban Lees and, and Freegies and – Who's he bringing in? Fosters. Well, you know, he's got the, the transfer from um, – from Notre Dame, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, you know, but most of his freshmen have been very marginal uh, division uh, power five players. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see when the football season starts, can Derek Mason and the coaching staff get – more out of what they have than, you know, than what we're all projecting a three or four win season. And I could probably say the same thing with, you know, Hardaway at Memphis, but I think Hardaway, I think even though he's, you know, not made the NCAA tournament yet, I think the guys he's bringing in that, you know, he can go get, Memphis has a chance to really get back to where they, to the glory days if he plays it right. Yeah, of course, that, that all fell apart last year when, when his Wiseman. main cog. But, uh, and, yeah, Wiseman, because, I mean, they Memphis was like top ten. And then the first time you started to see cracks in the armor for the Memphis bunch was after the Oregon game when, you know, when Wiseman was, you know, ineligible to play. Yeah. And then um, – Sorry, I'll go ahead. Then they had to put pressure to Chua in the middle, and it seemed like Chua just—I'm not going to say outmatched, but he—it was just physically, he just wasn't ready for that workload to play in the middle. Yeah, it, it's going to be um, very interesting in this state coming up with, between Memphis and, and Tennessee, and what Stackhouse does. And uh, Luther, I hate to do this; I've got to run to to get on to my next thing. But uh, oh no, 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 no! It has really been a pleasure being on with you today. Oh thank no, thank you. you. I mean, you know, it you know off and on the glitches and things like that. But we got covered a lot in about an hour, over an hour and a half. And thanks for allowing me to pick your brain. I do look forward to you know having another pod with you, and hopefully we're talking games, and maybe we can hopefully work together, and you know I can get better with my writing because I need to get better with my writing. Yeah, I do look forward to getting your thoughts on how I can improve on everything because for me, I don't want to be that guy that's like, oh, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what. Send me a text in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll, we'll get on that. Thanks, Chris. Luther, God bless you. Have a great day. Same to you. Be blessed, my friend. You bet.